You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Tonight, I want to talk about the Battle of the Little Bighorn and the reported hauntings of the Little Bighorn battlefield since. Of course, we know that the Battle of the Little Bighorn involved George Armstrong Custer and the 7th Cavalry and a whole lot of Native American tribesmen killing them. George Armstrong Custer was born December 5th, 1839 and died June 25th of 1876. He was a United States Army officer and cavalry commander in the American Civil War and the American Indian Wars. He was raised in Michigan and Ohio. Custer was admitted to West Point in 1857 where he distinguished himself by graduating absolutely dead last in a class of 34 in 1861. He was supposed to have been there longer, but their five-year program was cut down to four years and then I believe shortened a little bit more when the Civil War started. And the reason there was only 34 in his class was that several of them failed miserably to complete the classes and a bunch more left to go fight for the Confederacy. So that when the Civil War came, Custer was called to serve with the Union Army. He developed a strong reputation or should I say a strong-headed reputation during the Civil War. He was at the first major engagement, the first Battle of Bull Run. He had an association with several important officers and it helped his career, as did the fact that he was a highly successful and effective cavalry commander. Custer was breveted to Brigadier General at the age of 23. Now a brevet rank means it's temporary. You're good enough for it, but it's only going to be a temporary rank. It's not permanent. Custer was breveted to Brigadier General at the age of 23, less than a week before the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863, where he personally led cavalry charges that prevented Confederate cavalry from attacking the Union rear 
in support of the famous Pickett's Charge. He was later wounded in the Battle of Culpeper Courthouse in Virginia on September 13, in 1863. And in 1864, Custer was awarded another star and breveted up to Major General in rank. At the conclusion of the Appomattox Campaign, in which he and his troops played a decisive role, Custer was present at General Robert E. Lee's surrender to General Ulysses S. Grant on April 9th. 1865. So Custer, last in his class, first in the hearts of his men, served from 1861 through 1865, except for the time that he was wounded and recuperating. So he served the entire Civil War. After the Civil War, Custer remained a major general in the United States Volunteers until they were mustered out in February of 1866 at which point he reverted to his permanent rank of captain and was later appointed a lieutenant colonel in the 7th Cavalry Regiment in July of 1866. He was sent to the West in 1867 to fight the American Indian Wars. On June 25, 1876, just a week and a half before what would be the United States Centennial Celebration, 100 years, while leading the 7th Cavalry Regiment, at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in Montana Territory against a coalition of Native American tribes, he and all of his men were killed. The battle is popularly known in American history as Custer's Last Stand, or the Battle of the Little Bighorn. The Battle of the Little Bighorn, known to the Lakota Sioux and other Plains Indians as the Battle of the Greasy Grass, which is what they called the river, is also commonly referred to as Custer's Last Stand and it was an armed engagement between combined forces of the Lakota Sioux, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes, and the 7th Cavalry Regiment of the United States Army. The battle, which resulted in the defeat of U.S. forces, was the most significant action of the Great Sioux War of 1876. The fight was an overwhelming victory for the Lakota Sioux, the Northern Cheyenne, and the Arapaho, who were led by several major war leaders, including Crazy Horse, Chief Gall, and had been inspired by the visions of a man named Sitting Bull. The U.S. 7th Cavalry, including the Custer Battalion, a force of 700 men led by Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, suffered a major defeat. Five of the 7th Cavalry's 12 companies were annihilated, and Custer was killed, as were two of his brothers, a nephew and a brother-in-law. The total U.S. casualty count included 268 dead and 55 severely wounded, of which six died later from their wounds. This included four Crow Indian scouts and two Pawnee scouts. Up in Montana at the Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument, nearly 400,000 tourists visit each year. And they see the actual reason why the Indians, why the Native Americans, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the word Indians. The Indians could creep up on the troopers of the 7th Cavalry because there are ridges and there are gullies and valleys making it easy to sneak up on them and then attack them without much notice. Standing on the hill where Custer and the last of his men died, 
You can imagine the last few moments as Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer and his soldiers died at the hands of the Lakota and the Cheyenne. Many soldiers were wounded, they were helpless, and they were horrified as they heard the screams and the groans of death all around them. When the fierce battle was finished, their bodies were torn and mutilated beyond recognition. The Indians lost 50 to 100 warriors whose bodies were carried away from the battlefield by their loved ones. Beside the battlefield resides the Custer National Cemetery where 5,000 veterans and their family members are interred. If there ever was a place where ghosts might be, Custer Battlefield is such a place. According to stories from visitors and employees, the dead don't lie still at Little Bighorn. They're not at rest. Whether you believe that these occurrences happened or not, they add to the total mystique of the place. They're a part of the history of Custer Battlefield, and our curiosity will not allow us to ignore them. Of course, with folklore, with all folklore, it is difficult to find the story's origins. The encounters were numerous, and the superstitions go way back. The Crow people apparently were aware of something long before others. They called the superintendent of the graveyard, I would assume, the ghost herder because he lowered the flag at dusk, which the crow believed allowed the spirits to rise from their graves and walk amongst the living. When the flag was raised in the morning, the dead came back to rest. It's nearly impossible to pinpoint when employees and tourists began to experience strange observations. A historian by the name of Robert Utley, who was a ranger at the battlefield from 1947 to 1952, said, there was no ghost business going on then. I'm thinking he probably towed the government line that ghosts don't exist, therefore we do not acknowledge anything strange that happens, as is the case in other battlefield sites, national parks, things like that. However, an experience during this time may have involved a man named Charles Kuhlman, author of Legend Into History. It has been reported that Custer's ghost visited him. It's also been reported that Kuhlman would visit Last Stand Hill all alone in hopes of making some form of contact with the other world. Utley denies these events happened. However, it could explain Kuhlman's fantastic interpretation of the battle. Stories of the sounds of Indian warriors charging on horseback through the cemetery soon followed. People who walked through the cemetery at night spoke of cold spots that seemed to spring up from nowhere. Now, I'm not really a big fan of cold spots during ghost investigations because sometimes you just may walk into a place that's a little cooler than other places. I don't know. Having never been on a ghost investigation, I can say that if you've been on a ghost hunt and you've experienced this thing, great. I would like to hear about it, honestly. Tourists come in all shapes and sizes. So do their stories. A visitor from New Orleans claimed to have been transported back in time to witness the battle. While driving along Battle Ridge, a cab driver from Minneapolis witnessed soldiers and warriors fighting to the death. He came shaken and distraught into the visitor center where the employees calmed him down. Former Battlefield Park historian and superintendent Neil Mangum once received a strange call one day from a lady in Canada. 
She had a dream about an Indian killing a soldier during the Custer fight. Neil checked the 7th roster, but found no soldier listed under the name. However, the woman was persistent, stating the records were incorrect. One evening in August of 76, 1976 that is, a National Park Service law enforcement officer visited Last Stand Hill. He was alone when a sudden drop in temperature went through his body. He said the cold was accompanied by the soft murmuring of voices. He did not stay long enough to discover whether they were talking to him. How rude. In August of 1987, on a moonless night, a psychic from Colorado visited the battlefield. She'd never been there and knew little about the battle. She provided details, though, of action at Medicine Tail Ford and Nye Cartwright Ridge. Standing by the, beside the 7th Cavalry Monument and the mass grave of the soldiers dead, she felt the presence of restless spirits from the Custard Battalion. While visiting the cemetery, the same psychic saw a spirit warrior charge a seasonal employee, count coup, and then turn and ride past the visitor center down Cemetery Ridge. Now, counting coup, what is that, you might ask? Counting coup is when a warrior would ride in, and instead of killing his enemy, he would touch him with a coup stick, saying that he had gotten close enough to actually kill the man, but didn't. He would count coup, and sometimes they would do this multiple times, and it would, it would raise their status as a warrior. The employee that this ghost Indian counted coup on was resting with his eyes closed, but as the warrior touched him with the stick, the employee opened his eyes and said, what was that? She saw more. Behind the seasonal homes, she saw 20 to 30 warriors coming late into the battle. They were dressed in their finest, painted, and feathers pointed down from their heads. Could she have witnessed the small group of young warriors who sacrificed their lives for the benefit of the people? These warriors entered the battle near the completion, dressed to meet the everywhere spirit, and have been referred to as the Suicide Boys. Now, I looked up the Suicide Boys, and they weren't mentioned until recently. Some articles came to light where somebody talked about, I believe it was four Sioux warriors who were young men. Uh, I believe they were orphans. I think that's right. And 20 of another tribe would go in intending not to come out of the battle. So they would go in to die, but they would go in to kill. So those were the suicide boys. Of course, many of the employees have strange stories. Most of the following were reported by people who are highly respected on the battlefield. Former Custer Battlefield Park Ranger Mardell Plainfeather experienced an encounter in 1980. Mardell is a member of the Crow Tribe and still faithfully practices her people's ceremonies. She and her family regularly visited their sweat lodge that sat quietly in the thick timber along the Little Bighorn River across from the battlefield. Late one evening, Mardell and her daughter, Lorena, went to the sweat lodge to ensure the fire was extinguished. Quote, I don't make a habit of going out in the dark by myself, but I was in my car so I wasn't scared or anything. I had never had any supernatural experiences before and I was certainly not prepared for one. But when I saw them, it didn't scare me at all. That was quoting Mardell. 
What she saw were two Indian warrior spirits sitting on their horses high up on a bluff. The warriors were on the battlefield proper, so they were within the confines of the fence. They were dressed for war, painted, feathers placed in long flowing hair, and one even wore braids. They carried shields and one had a bow. One lifted himself from the saddle and looked directly down at Mardell, but she could not clearly see if the warriors were Crow, Sioux, or Cheyenne. Again, quoting Mardell, even if they were Sioux or Cheyenne spirits, they didn't mean me any harm at all. Perhaps they were just trying to tell me that I was doing a good job of interpreting the battle story to our visitors. Perhaps they were just trying to tell me that they were happy that a Native American, no matter what tribe, was finally telling their side of the story. Maybe their spirits were restless." Unquote. Mardell related another experience that took place in her family's battleground house. One night in 1986, while the family was asleep, there came three loud knocks at her bedroom door. When the door was open, no one was there. Her husband, Dan, walked through the house, especially into the kids' bedroom, in fear that there may have been a burglar. The kids were safe and fast asleep. Mardell said, The next day my father-in-law said not to worry because it was only my husband's grandmother saying goodbye. She had died that night. There's a, a building on the battleground area called the Stone House. It was built in 1894 as a residence for the superintendent. And it's a two-story building located between large evergreens and the entrance gate to the cemetery. It has been converted to the White Swan Memorial Library, the park historian's office and conference rooms. The lower level was once used to house bodies awaiting a burial in the cemetery. Before becoming the White Swan Memorial Library, it was used as a summer residence for the staff and was kept tightly shut and left empty during the winter. While living on the battleground, Neil Mangum remembers walking home on many winter nights through the cemetery and seeing the lights on in the stone house upstairs apartment. He always turned off the lights. Once he couldn't get the front door open. Frustrated, Neil went home, returning an hour later. The door opened easily. He walked up the stairs and in Neil's usual calm demeanor, he turned off the lights one more time. Neil and his family lived in the stone house for a couple of weeks when they first came to the battlefield. Although they saw nothing, their dog wasn't real happy about spending a lot of time, and he paced back and forth constantly. One night in 1980, Mardell noticed the lights. She did not want to enter the stone house by herself, so she went to apartment A to ask the ranger Mike to go with her. He offered to turn off the lights himself. His wife, Ruth, was watching an evening program on their new television, bought that day in Hardin. Mardell gave Mike the keys, and she went home. Soon, Mike returned the keys and related a strange incident to Mardell. While Mike was in the stone house, Ruth noticed the television picture went blank. A voice coming from the television explained, Second story as Mike began walking up the stairs toward the upper level apartment. Ruth was shaken when Mike returned, but he reassured her that nothing happened. 
Inside the stone house, things have happened, though. A woman's figure has been seen coming down the stairs. Footsteps are heard upstairs when no one is there. And during the summer season of 1986, a new battlefield ranger was housed for two nights in the upstairs apartment. He awoke the first night feeling someone sitting at the foot of his bed. He first thought it was his wife, but he remembered she was visiting family overseas, and he was alone. As he reached for his Colt 45, laying on the nightstand, he saw a shadowy figure move from the foot of the bed. The ranger distinctly saw the torso of a soldier with the head and legs missing as the apparition disappeared into the other room. They put up a wooden wall complete with a padlocked door to make two bedrooms in the lower level of the stone house. One night early in the 1989 season, two staff members were sound asleep. One was suddenly awakened by loud bangs on the partition wall. The sound was coming from the opposite side of the wall. The door was locked. The padlock was on the employee side of the wall. The strong knocks occurred again. The other staff member was awakened, but the sounds had stopped. The only entrance to the other side of the wall is through a window that was securely locked. The person who experienced this event felt it was, quote, just the boys welcoming them back to the battlefield, unquote. A couple named Alan Florence Jacobson spent many summers in the stone house upstairs apartment. They grew accustomed to the strange happenings in the stone house. They weren't totally comfortable with the fact, however, that the doorknob turned and there was no one at the door or the unexplained footsteps coming from the empty upstairs apartment as Al and Florence were viewing slides downstairs. There is only one entrance by way of the stairs from the front door. They also speak of coming home and finding personal items moved around. No harm has ever come to Al and Florence. Florence believes the spirit is a friendly one, and one day as she began to eat lunch, she suddenly heard a loud, high-pitched noise coming from the kitchen. She said it sounded like a tea kettle boiling, though she wasn't boiling water at the time. She lifted her fork to take a bite of food when the sound came again, this time louder. She looked at her food. It was leftovers that included chicken. She picked up the plate and emptied the contents in the trash. She believes that the food was spoiled and the spirit saved her from getting food poisoning. Summer of 85, Al and Florence came equipped to settle the spirit or the spirits of the stone house. Their ghost repellents included an iron kept on the coffee table, a crucifix in each room, shoes under the bed, and fresh baked bread. Florence happily supplied many staff members with homemade bread that summer. In August of 1997, just before the stone house was closed for its conversion to the White Swan Memorial Library, Four people spent the last night anyone would spend sleeping in the stone house. Little did they know that the visitors of another kind would bid farewell in a most remarkable way. One man slept in the upstairs apartment bedroom while a father and son shared the sleeper sofa in the apartment's living room. A young woman slept downstairs. She awoke in the middle of the night to hear footsteps upstairs. She figured it was one of the fellows heading to the bathroom. The footsteps exited the bedroom, went through the upstairs hall to the bathroom, then back again. No big deal. 
Then moments later, more footsteps, but this time they were louder. They became so forceful that she noticed shavings of paint falling from the edge of the downstairs windows. She first thought that there was a person and that that person would wake up the whole house. She became very concerned as each new trip to the bathroom became louder and more forceful, almost vibrating the entire downstairs. Suddenly, the downstairs kitchen door slammed shut with a loud bang that vibrated the whole downstairs. She startled and jumped up. She knew it wasn't a gust of wind because all the windows had been well covered with heavy plastic and taped very securely during the renovation. It wasn't wind that slammed that door shut. It was something else. The young woman immediately left the stone house and tried to sleep in her car. The next morning she shared this experience with the men who slept upstairs. All were perplexed because none of them heard footsteps banging around the apartment. However, the father sleeping on the sofa remembered being awakened by a loud bang from downstairs around 2.30 a.m. It may have been the kitchen door slamming shut that wakened him. In an attempt to recreate the effects of the footsteps, one of the men walked around upstairs while she and the other two listened from below. She kept yelling upstairs for the man to walk more forcefully. He eventually reached the point where it sounded the way she remembered. Everyone looked at each other. They realized that the footsteps were so loud that no one upstairs could have slept through that, but they did. Are the visitors of another kind selective as to whom they attempt to communicate with? The visitor center sits at the bottom of Last Stand Hill. Tourists step into this place to escape the heat of the Montana sun. Here they can browse the bookstore or visit the museum. When the tourists have left and the doors are locked, the visitor center experiences the problem of lights coming on after hours and faint voices calling out. In the summer of 1985, an employee had an odd experience in the basement. He had just presented a program to the public and was returning some items to the audiovisual room. Before he reached the inventory storage room, he noticed a figure of a person standing in the dark corner. Although it appeared to him to be a soldier, he thought it was a fellow employee dressed as such to play a trick on him. He pretended not to see the soldier and walked past him. The employee turned left to enter the audio room and he noticed out of the corner of his eye the shadowy figure of the soldier moving into the hall. The apparition proceeded to walk through the locked door of the inventory room. It wasn't a joke after all. There was a story printed in a book by a man named Earl Murray. The book was called Ghost of the Old West. And the lady that told the story was named Christine Hope. And it was about a place called Apartment C. Hope had been employed under the SCA program during the summer and fall of 1983. She had been living in Apartment C, which was arranged as an efficiency apartment. She slept on the couch. One early fall night, she awoke about 2 a.m. Looking in the direction of the kitchen, Christine noticed a figure of a man sitting at a table. He had a long handlebar mustache. Hope glanced away, but when she looked back, he was still there. And not only was he looking at her, but his face and eyes had the most ghostly, tortured, painful expression. Though he was not speaking, Hope felt this visitor was attempting to convey the message that something very serious and very tragic occurred here and one should never make fun of it or make light of it. 
The figure finally disappeared and it took Hope some time before she was brave enough to go turn on the lights. The next day, Tim and Christine visited the Reno Retreat Crossing. They climbed down the steep bluffs where Reno and his three companies retreated from the Valley of the Little Bighorn. After reaching the site of the crossing, Tim began to give Christine a detailed report of the action seen there on the day of the battle. They stood before the marker of Lieutenant Benjamin H. Hodgson of Company B, which rests alone on the east side of the river. While crossing the river, Hodgson had his legs shattered by a bullet that killed his horse. Falling in the river, Hodgson grabbed a stirrup of a passing horse that carried him to the opposite bank. Hodgson moved up the draw but was cut down by an Indian bullet. Christine was impressed with the story of Hodgson. Her curiosity led the two to search for more information on the officer. Returning to the museum, Christine read further about Hodgson and Tim located a, a photo of which he showed to Christine. She was taken aback since that was the man she'd seen the night before in her apartment. Then Christine shared the events of apartment C. She slept with the lights on in apartment C for the rest of her tour of duty out there. Hodgson's late night visit with Hope was apparently not his first. The late John Carroll in the November 1988 issue of the Little Bighorn Associates newsletter reported Hodgson's communication with his friend Lieutenant Clinton H. Tebbets in 1877. This communication came through a medium and simply stated, the seventh fought gallantly. Of course, stories have turned up in the, in the most recent history. While giving a live program to visitors, a ranger was suddenly interrupted by the feeling that something was pulling in his leg, trying to force him to the ground. He looked down to find nothing there. One woman working in the bookstore alone felt someone tap her on the shoulder. She turned around to find she was alone. The visitors of another kind do not appear to be settling down. Keep that in mind if you ever have the opportunity to visit Custer Battlefield late at night when the headstones reflect the light of the moon, when all is still and quiet, and when the flag has been lowered. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Of course, you can reach me at Terry's Mysterious Moments on Facebook or Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. If you have any stories to share, share them with me. I'd like to hear them. That's all I have for the week. We'll talk to you next time. Good night.